welcome back to Lit Century, where we're here to fulfill all your book-related 20th century needs. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm here with Catherine Nichols, and our guest host today is novelist Caitlin Greenidge. This is our second episode of the Harlem Renaissance masterpiece Passing by Nella Larson, which is about the color line, the line between love and hate, and the party-centric world of upper-class black society in 1920s Harlem. And for a very brief pressing of the plot, the very conventional Irene is thrown into emotional disarray when her childhood friend Claire Kendry reappears in her life. And it turns out Claire's married not just a white man, but a white racist who doesn't know his wife is black. The stress of this, and the stress of Irene's very odd passion for Claire, basically turns Irene into that most dangerous of creatures, an unreliable narrator. Okay, so I want to introduce our guest, Caitlin Greenidge, who is best known up until now for her brilliant and genuinely one-of-a-kind first novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, for which she won the Whiting Award. But Caitlin is also the author of the forthcoming Liberty, L-I-B-E-R-T-I-E, which is inspired by the life of one of the first black female doctors in the United States, and it also contains issues of passing. Um, I want to just give you a quote from Mira Jacob about the novel. So much will be written about Caitlin Greenidge's liberty, how it blends history and magic into a new kind of telling, how it spins the past to draw deft circles around our present, but none of it will measure up to the singular joy of reading this book. Okay, so that's Liberty, and it'll be out in early 2021, but it is available for pre-order now. Um, And Caitlin Greenish is also a New York Times op-ed contributor who has recently been made Features Director for Harper's Bazaar, and it's probably worth mentioning that she wrote the introduction to the new Modern Library edition of Nella Larson's Passing. So welcome, and thank you for being with us, Caitlin Greenish. And I just wanted to like I start by asking you a question based on your introduction, which was really terrific. So you were talking in the introduction about who is allowed to transgress and passing as a as a book that allows Irene to be an angry black woman and still be our hero, but also I, I guess really that allows black female characters to be anti-heroes. Can mm-hmm. can you can you kind of talk about that or? Sure. I mean, I, I was thinking a lot um, whenever I read Passing. I, I think it's a Toni Morrison quote from Sula or, or she's talking about Sula. I can't remember if it's in the novel or in her writings around the novel. But she talks a lot about how in female friendships, especially sort of like one-on-one friendships, um, there's one friend who is sort of testing boundaries and transgresses and then the other friend who um, sort of observes. That's that's often a dynamic that um, is described, especially in uh, books and uh, literature about female friendship. And um, I think passing definitely um, has those themes. Uh, and it's interesting that the women characters of passing, um, I, you know, Irene is allowed a lot of rage and um, antipathy towards Claire. And so she's allowed to um, express those things because Claire has transgressed, because Claire is um, passing, essentially. And and is not only is she passing, but she's trying to have it both ways. Um, she's walking back. She's crossing the color line over and over again, uh, back and forth, um, which, you know, is uh, 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 in the world that... Um, 
that Larson has written and in the world of passing as it appeared in uh, black fiction of the um, early 20th century, that was like one of the rules of passing, whether or not that was a rule of passing of how um, people actually lived their lives uh, when they were light skinned and could pass is a, is a little bit different. Like we, we have um, memoirs and uh, letters and uh, diaries um, from white passing black people that that kind of complicates that idea. Um, but within the world of literary fiction, um, if a if a black person was passing as white, they could never pass back. That was sort of like the, the drama mm-hmm. and the tension um, and where the tragedy came from. Um, and uh, um, Claire does not play by those rules. Uh, and Irene is furious with her <laughs> at that and, and is allowed to express that anger because Claire is the transgressor. So if we were to read a novel about Irene being furious about, um, furious, directly furious about her uh, position as a um, light-skinned uh, Black woman in a sort of hothouse social environment, um, with all of the conscriptions of being an upper middle class black woman uh, comes from from her time and race and place, um, her anger would look very different. But because it's directed at this fellow woman, um, you know, mm-hmm. this woman who's almost her double, uh, it is allowed sort of a breath and a and a deepness and a um, and a full exploration that maybe it wouldn't uh, be allowed to have or or you know. Um, Larson could write whatever she wanted on the page, but um, wouldn't be recognized as uh, legitimate by a reader, I guess, or by the larger um, culture. Uh, yeah, I I thought that um, a lot of Irene's anger was interesting because she is supposedly not transgressing in this way, even though she admits in the text itself that she passes regularly mm-hmm. for theater tickets and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Like she is actually passing in many of the scenes where she encounters Claire in the beginning of the book, but she doesn't think of herself as doing that yeah. in a transgressive way because she has these rules that are kind of arbitrary that, um, that she'll only do it, you know, if she's like buying something, but she won't pass socially and that that's like meaningful to her in a way that, that the rest of the book doesn't really support the idea that that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think a lot of her rage comes from the fact that, um, that her life isn't that different than Claire's. Like she's playing by all these rules um, that she sees Claire breaking those rules, but she's not really getting the advantages that she believes that she would get from staying on her side of the color line socially. Right. Um, Like she thinks that Claire shouldn't be allowed to come back. And she thinks that, um, that Claire should be considered like, you know, permanently afraid of um, having a darker skinned child, but she's also dealing with colorism for her children. And she's also dealing with um, like a a marriage that has a lot of um, scorn inside it. And yeah, I mean, I think that's where Larson's novel is so true to life, you know, like uh, where those sort of deep, um, uh, um, resentments come from is when we see oftentimes, you know, it is a mixture of self-loathing and seeing sort of the traits in yourself in the people around you, um, not coming out in the, in the way that you uh, have sort of ordered them in your head. And so I think it's actually really important that these two women are so alike and so similar. Um, and I think that's a big reason why um, this sort of static exists between them. 
Um, you know, they're almost too close. It's like when you try and get uh, magnets together or something, like they're just going to repel each other away. Um, and it's also sort of like a really a bleak vision of the possibilities of um, uh, female solidarity that these two women can share so, mm-hmm. so much. And yet um, the end result of it is uh, we actually can't really come together, or at least <laughs> Irene believes we can't really come together. You know, like I can't actually be honest or real with you, even though we have this um, shared and lived shared experience. Like I actually can't oftentimes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in conversation with you and I'm thinking instead about how much um, I'm judging you essentially. Um, and I think that's a really sort of like prickly and hard thing to swallow and a prickly and hard thing to recognize. Um, you know, I, this novel feels so much in conversation or Sula rather, I guess, cause Sula came after it feels so much in conversation with this novel, just in that it is, it is in that very uneasy place of female friendship. And I know that um, Sula by readers is often remembered as like a celebration of female friendship, but in Sula, the same thing is, is happening with, with those two, two um, female friend characters. There is that sort of antipathy and that, that odd place where um, their relationships land uh, uh, together. Um, you know, I'm sorry to quote Sula when we're talking about passing, but there's that great line in it where, uh, where (laughs) Morrison says of Sula is that she's an, she's an artist without any, without a craft. So it makes her dangerous. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's essentially, she's an artist without an outlet. So she becomes dangerous and she sort of transgresses. And I I think there's an argument to describe Claire in a similar way um, and to think of her in a similar way. Uh, And um, how that, uh, how that conscription in society of women's um, care and attention and where we are um, authorized to sort of put ourselves and, and put ourselves forth and, and um, self-actualize um, and how that ends up that, that um, conscription and censorship ends up corroding sort of like our, our close relationships, our ability to, to, to form close relationships with those around us. So do you, yeah. And so do you see that the book as being kind of a drama of of self-hatred, of Irene projecting? I guess, I guess she, like she could be projecting, she's projecting certainly her desires, her forbidden desires mm-hmm. onto Claire and seeing mm-hmm. Claire as an embodiment of everything that she doesn't allow herself to do. And yeah. that defines her as a good person who deserves things and yeah. whose husband should be faithful and do the things she wants. So is that that like psychic murder is that a psychic murder at the end of of the hope of freedom it's actually the transgression that the book is so beautifully embodying is killed by irene at the end yeah but i you know i think what's what makes this so like a a like a something to chew on is like i wouldn't argue that um claire is experiencing freedom like she's she's transgressing but it's not she's not reaching liberation with her transgressions, you know, like she's still very much bound by white supremacy, by misogynoir, by all of this stuff that even as she is sort of, um, uh, freely has, has free movement, uh, on the surface, she's not actually outside of those systems or imagining into a world that is different than those systems. And so I think that that plays into this question of sort of, um, self-annihilation and self-loathing that Claire feels when she looks at her because they're, they are within an impossible system. 
um, yeah. you know. Uh, Yeah, I saw that a lot. Also, just um, knowing about uh, Larson entering sort of upper middle class, respectable black society through marriage. Um, And I saw that like um, the very uh, the, the way that Irene thinks and the way that Clara thinks, it's like they're so familiar with the world that they're moving through both sides of the color line. And yet they have no imagination for liberation beyond it, either of yeah. them. And they're unable yeah. to connect with each other and see that like they're they, they understand what's going on in the power structures around them so much better than any of the men, either the white husband or the black mm-hmm. husband. They they completely understand the power structure because they know they're sort of on the underneath. Um and yet they are unable to actually talk to each other, connect, or imagine beyond it. Um, and it seemed like a, a critique of the whole idea of respectability that Irene mm-hmm. is so caught up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, again, that sort of idea of like an artist without a craft sort of becomes dangerous. You know, when you, when you are able to see all of those uh, power structures and hierarchy and you have the sort of emotional and social intelligence to understand how all that works. And yet you're missing the piece of being able to even imagine a different world or Mm. that something could be different or something could be freer um, or something could be, um, you know, more conducive to your growth. Um, Then that world really becomes maddening because you can't, you literally can't imagine your, your way out of it. And I think that's sort of an underlying part of passing. Um, You know, passing is, is part of a bunch of novels from like, um, probably like the 1880s, 1890s on um, from Black authors uh, who were super interested uh, in writing about passing and, and had characters sort of in, in literature. Their literature, um, uh, uh, Chestnut is probably the most famous author who uses them a lot, um, uh, uses the motif of passing a lot. Um, and oftentimes passing was a way to sort of talk about um the color line and the limitations of uh, the American racial imaginary for people. Um, and uh, it was a way to interrogate sort of the larger culture's argument that um, uh, the black condition was, was, you know, natural. It was just like the result of how things always were and how always should be. If you had a character who um, was white passing, you were able to sort of needle and push at that idea so like passing as an intellectual like construct and a a way to sort of talk about those things about um the possibilities around the color line um becomes really important and it and it is interesting um that uh for various reasons um you know most authors uh came down the side of like um passing as a way to sort of ironically underline that there is no escape from this color line um, and I think Larson is remarkable and, and why passing endures in a way that some of those other novels do not is because Larson talks about um, how that uh, inescapability of the color line is bound up with gender, is bound up with uh, respectability politics, is bound up with um, sort of all of these uh, uh, pieces that make this really impossible. And, and it becomes an existential question for these women of who are they? outside of these structures? Can they even imagine themselves outside of these structures? Mm-hmm. And 
the answer for Irene, at least, I think is a no. <laughs> you know, like that's a tragic yeah, novel, yeah. you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was just thinking about this with the, with regard to, um, sorry to bring another book in, but Autobiography mm-hmm. of an Ex-Colored Man and how mm-hmm. in, in that book, the, the only choice that he sees for himself is either to remain publicly black and devote his entire life to glorifying the black race by popularizing ragtime or mm-hmm. being able to live safely and prosperously as a white man. And you sort of see that in passing, like that kind of mental constriction where living as black is a responsibility and a duty and it's your job to elevate the race and to be mm-hmm. part of some uplift project. And the only way to escape from that is to become white if that's an option for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's well, not exception of whiteness as the only, the only people who can be selfish are white people. Except that neither of the women, I mean, because by virtue of being women, it's like, it's, it's both. Like Larson, mm-hmm. I think, is definitely talking about, you know, intersection, races, sex mm-hmm. as, um, uh, as layers here, because the uplift that Irene has available to her and the freedom that Claire has available to her on either side of the color line are each, they're like a tiny fraction of what would be available if they were men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Because most of what they can do is just like hang out with other women and children, you know, like they're still so constrained. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting to compare this to um, for another project because I'm writing a my next novel um, deals a lot with colorism. So I, I was reading a lot of memoirs from um, white passing black authors um, and Charles W. Chestnut, who is uh, sort of like the, the great writer around all of this. Um, and uh, The House Behind the Pines is probably the, the most famous novel that he has mm-hmm. about it. And, and in his diary um, that I was reading, he's he has all these passages. He was white passing or, or white presenting. Um, and he has all these passages about his own sort of constrictions around this as a, as a man, as a, as a white presenting man. And his biggest constriction, I mean, you can you can argue about how um, really transgressive this is. But his biggest constriction is that um, in one of the diary passages, he talks about falling in love with a darker skinned woman and um, it causes an identity crisis for him. He's not really sure, first of all, like who he, what he's supposed to desire. Um, And then he's also not sure of what it would mean to be in a public relationship with this woman and give up the ease of passing. And so I think that even sort of complicates even what we're saying about gender and what would be available to them if they were men, because I think the way that um, colorism and the larger sort of anti-blackness works, um, it's like a tricky thing. It's, it's constantly sort of um, switching through their lives in sort of unexpected ways. And I, I think that for these two women, this question of racial uplift, which is so oppressive for um, Irene and her husband, mm-hmm. uh, Another sort of uh, tricky part of it that that Larson sort of sees the trap within those respectability politics 
Um, and she's not alone in that. Like a, a lot of um, black authors in Harlem Renaissance actually wrote a lot about sort of lampooning these respectability politics um, sort of ironically that now they're held up by those same people as, as being so wonderful. But a lot of the writing out of that is, um, is sort of interrogating that mindset of, of, of uplift around all costs and, um, and flattening of self and identity in, in the name of racial uplift. Yeah. And the, the amount that Irene and her husband both um, appear to, to hate the people that they are trying yeah. to uplift and the amount <laughs> that they feel like they want to do anything they can to define themselves separate from them. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it just, it, um, you can see why Nala Larson, when she left her marriage also left that set of people. Yeah. 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 100%. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, you know, um, as long as there have been black novels, there's been like this deconstruction of the black middle class, which is super fascinating. Cause like, you know, in the 1890s, how many people were really making up like the black middle class, like not really that many, but it's, it's sort of always been um, this question and this tension um, that's been explored in a certain segment of uh, black domestic fiction. Um, and uh, that is, continually unresolved, continually um, uh, sort of like an undercurrent um, question in a lot of, in a lot of writing. Yeah. And just, I, I just have to get this. I met, failed to get this into the, the last interview. So I have to get this <laughs> very, very cruel biographical fact about Nella Larson in here, which is that when she left her marriage to Elmer Imes, um, He'd been unfaithful for a long time, but at the time that it finally completely imploded, he had left her for a white woman. Mm -hmm. And this was like, he had gotten a job at Fisk University, and this white woman was an important official at the university. But the really cruel and terrible thing about it was that all of the people at Fisk rallied around him and the white woman Mm -hmm. and stigmatized and scapegoated Nella Larson for essentially having a bad reaction to it. Yeah. So that's there's your black middle class at that time, with the mm-hmm. with the zero. I mean, again, it's we're back into intersectionality here, where they were right, around. right, like like the the equation of racial uplift, of course, is like um, that the racial uplift depends on um, protection and burnishing the image of black men at all costs, mm. and. Um, controlling and policing the uh, affairs and movements of black women at all costs. So like those two things going hand in hand um, are so much a part of what the racial uplift narrative is. And Mm -hmm. as like shocking as that is around Nella Larson, like she's not even the only black woman that happened to like um, a really early black suffragette, a similar thing happened to her. She, she wrote in support of uh, uh, women's, getting the vote and uh uh she taught at tuskegee um all of tuskegee turned against her led by booker t washington <laughs> her husband left her for a white woman um she uh, had like something like eight kids and was teaching at tuskegee and like made tenure um but it became to be too much and she actually ended up dying by suicide oh. um oh. and like that is like that that whole trajectory is like a very well-worn one um, and, a, and a well-known one. Uh, and, and is like the hypocrisy and the um, limitations that are at 
the heart of any sort of talk around uplift or um, Black respectability politics. Yeah, this book seems incredibly clear-eyed about that, even though none of those th- things have happened yet in mm-hmm. Larson's life to yeah. her at the mm-hmm. time she was writing it. She seems to absolutely understand that that's sort of the society that she has married into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the that that cruelty inside of um, how Irene thinks about the world yeah. from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the tragedy about Irene is, like, she's bought into this world hook, line, and sinker, right? Like, she's she's like, I'm, you know, I, I don't particularly like it, but I'm in it. I'm not even going to try and, um, and uh, argue that there could be something else. Um, and I think that's the thing that's poisoning her and poisoning her reaction to Claire um, and why Claire, even though Claire isn't really, re- really representative of, of something that's much different than herself, why Claire um, causes the reaction that she, that she does in her. Um, a great, another great book to read in pairing with passing is a memoir that was recently uh, rediscovered. It's called An American Cocktail um, by Anita, uh, let me look it up very quickly. by Anita Reynolds, An American Cocktail by Anita Reynolds, and it's called A Colored Girl in the World is the subtitle. Um, and she was a white-passing Black woman living during the 1920s, um, writing this memoir. Uh, it was lost for many years and republished in 2014. Um, her tone is very jocular, and it is sort of like a, a mirror image of this, in that she too accepts the limitations of you know, the color line and, and the world. And yet the way that she talks about passing is um, uh, like this transitional thing. And it's more sort of like uh, a, a trick that she's pulling on the world at large rather than this existential question. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, she talks a lot about her family members who moved back and forth over the color, back and forth across the color line um, with, you know, in her telling of it, sort of very little consequence. Um, so it's just an alternative way um, to sort of well, great. I'll check that out. Yeah. Side by side. <clears throat> so it's sort of a, a joyful passing narrative for a change. I don't know. Joyful is maybe the wrong word because uh, like she also talks about how she was like uh-huh. passing in um, like uh, uh, 1930s Germany and like got in with like an SS officer. So like joyful is maybe the wrong word, wow. but like <laughs> it's just an alternative. <laughs> thinking of thinking of it. <laughs> and that was our second episode about passing by Nella Larson. I'd like to once again thank Caitlin Greenidge and once again really recommend that you pre-order her new book Liberty. And please come back next week when we we'll be talking about Cheaper by the Dozen, our first non-masterpiece book. Um, it was a 1940s mega bestseller, uh, which is essentially it's like a, a very light comedy about a family with 12 children and two parents who are time motion study experts. But it contains sort of volumes of creepiness just under the surface, which we will be excavating. Um, and if you'd like to write to us, as always, you can write to us at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at litcenturypodcast, all one word, obviously. Um, And we will look forward to speaking to you next week.